Coming up on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we're covering community feedback. Google and Canonical are teaming up on a cross-platform game changer. How important are security keys is another topic we're going to cover this week. And should you be using them or do you just prefer to be hacked instead? We're also going to be covering Drox Operative, a DRM free game, and our beloved tips, tricks, and software picks. All of this and so much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. Cue music, fancy scene graphics, and we retransition back into the show. Welcome to episode number 182. This is a podcast about sharing our passion for Linux and open source. My name is Ryan, and with me today are the warrior nuns of Linux, Noah and Michael. Now, if either of you get that reference... I need to check your Netflix list. So let's find out what everyone's been up to this week. Noah, what's been new in your world, sir? Well, Unify made the exciting decision to go ahead and cancel uh, and and end of life their Unify products uh, for for, uh, cameras. And so... um, Didn't you just invest in a whole bunch of these NVR stuff? Yeah. We've been installing them for about two and a half years for people. And you know, it's, it's actually, it's pretty insidious because not only are they discontinuing the, the NVR series, they're also uh, discontinuing their cloud service. So if you were a business that like relied on this service in order to get access to your cameras, now you're out in the cold. Now the truth is we of course didn't have anybody on the cloud service because you know, I don't believe in it. But um, and the other thing is, because the Unify cameras uh, support an RTMP standard, it means they are pretty trivial to move over to a Synology NVR, which is what we're replacing it with Synology NVR with a, a surveillance station running. But at the end of the day, uh, where where we're left at is another company has discontinued a product that everybody was using. They're going away from the concept of self-installing. So whereas the old NVR software could be installed on any computer, so you could run it on a Dell server with as much RAM or as much storage as you needed. Now you're limited to their little crappy arm box that you can put a, a USB hard drive hanging off the back. So if you thought that you were going to continue to use that Unify software for hundreds of cameras, um, like you were able to do previously, you're no longer able to do that. Thank well, you, in Mark. fairness, though, on the Ask Noah show, you have drilled this into your audience's head about staying away from these services that create their own protocols in which there's no other standard but their own proprietary mm-hmm. standard because if they drop their service and it goes away, you are stuck with hundreds or thousands of dollars worth of equipment that is now entirely worthless. And in the small print in their terms and conditions, they're going to say something like, you know, so sorry if we decide to terminate the service, you won't have service, deal with it, and you have no ability to really fight it. You just have, and these camera systems are expensive. Every time you talk about setups and suggestions on Ask Noah Show, I know you painstakingly go to try to find options that your average consumer can afford and get into their homes and things that compete with the likes of Blink and other stuff, which mm-hmm. obviously, you know, they have a lot of privacy concerns with those type of cameras. And but the cost is so cheap and the setup is so cheap, but there's a lot of security issues that you you go through on your show. But this is just almost proof of what you've been saying over and over again on your show is do not get locked into these proprietary platforms because you will find yourself without an option. Now, in this case, though, you're saying they shut down the cloud service, but because it was using a standard, an open standard, you can move it to somewhere else and still yeah, at I least mean, it's, use it. It's a, it's a two it's a two part 
thing, right? They're discontinuing the self-install. So you can't even host the NVR software yourself anymore. So that's problem one. Problem two was even if you weren't self-hosting, even if you were uh, on the cloud, even if you were on Unify's own platform, the thing that they told you to go to, you're still going to lose access to your cameras. You're still going to lose access to your service because they're going to shut that down. And the only option you have to keep that those cameras running uh, after January 1st, 2021, is to purchase a brand new NVR, which of course is locked to only Unify cameras. So I wouldn't recommend you do that. I'd recommend you go buy a Synology and put a real NVR in and uh, leave Unify high and dry. And hopefully they'll just stop making security cameras and go back to making access points and networks because I wasn't really all that impressed with their cameras to begin with. It's not like they actually follow the ONVIF standard. It's basically a stupid RTMP camera and it's not even a good RTMP camera. They die a lot. So, uh, so are you done with ubiquity? Is this kind of a, a situation where they've just kind of continued to have some slips and they're it's, on your watch list? Yeah, it's a step in that direction. The truth is like, I, I'm outright furious about the, the decisions with their surveillance system. I am begrudgingly tolerant of the fact that they f require metrics, but you can turn them off inside of the NVR or inside of the Unify controller if you're using them for networking stuff. But it requires, a, a, you know, you have to SSH in and you've got to modify config files. It's not like there's an option in the UI to disable uh, diagnostics being collected from your internal network. So I'm, they're on the short list to get cut. But the truth is I, I looked at it and and first of all, there's nothing, there's nothing better privacy-wise with the scale and flexibility of Unify, they still make a phenomenal network product and it's still the best option for, for small to medium-sized businesses that just want to plug and play solutions. So for networking stuff, I, we're still going to carry them. We're still going to install them and I still feel pretty confident and still the access points I have in my house, but I'm 100% done with them with surveillance. And uh, if anything ever did come up that was a better, more open alternative to Unify, I'd certainly be open at this point to replacing it. One more question for you. Uh, I heard you say Synology NAS multiple times. Why not find a solution for your free NAS? Is there no solutions that are good there that free NAS has? Does it not have some security suites built in? I would use, uh, I would never use a Synology as my first choice for a NAS, but the truth is that I, I evaluated every free and open source and every proprietary uh, camera solution out there to include the big ones that that they're they're using in like Las Vegas and stuff for doing uh, like uh, you know casino security. And the truth is that the man the Synology surveillance system it doesn't have some of the more like extremely robust features like following individual people's face tracking ID that kind of stuff. But for 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 basic, I need motion recording here, here, and here. I need to be able to pull my cameras up from anywhere. I need recordings. I want the ability to add cameras from multiple vendors. I want support for pan, tilt, zoom. Surveillance station does all of that. Very nice. I have two Synology NASes and I have the free NAS server, which I use all of them. And I like, they all have their advantages and disadvantages, but that actually yeah. gives me a solution because I know the security software for cameras is built into the NAS I, to enable I that. would. I it. would run, not walk to your Synology and install surveillance station and start playing with it. I mean, I, I mean cool. that it is so good. Love it. So, Michael, what's new in your world? I honestly wanted to talk about some stuff we've done on the Destination Linux network instead because we have some you – know, last week we talked about – we had the interview with the Pseudo Show. We told you about that. But well, there's also some really interesting, cool stuff that's happening with the DLN Extend podcast. So go check out DLNExtend.com, and you can see the, the awesome podcast that's happening. And we have two new hosts on that show. Uh, Wendy and Matt are joining Nate 
for a like a, a new style of doing that show. So I really love the direction they're taking it because it's kind of going into a community-powered podcast where they take topics from the DLN forum or the Discord server or the, the Telegram group and they, they expand on it and have a, like a much more in-depth conversation about these individual topics and stuff like that. It's a really cool idea. So if you haven't checked it out, definitely go to uh, dlnextend.com and have a look. So Ryan, what have you been doing with this week? So, you know, I've been talking about how much I love PyCharm as the IDE for all the Python work that I've been doing. I now have four certifications in Python. I finished my one this week and it's just been an amazing experience. It's my favorite language out there. So I also created a portal on dosgeekcommunity.com. You go to the Python page where all the resources and courses and things that I've taken that I found I like and the ones that I don't. But PyCharm, I was having an issue where it was crashing every so often, maybe every hour or so, it would just completely crash and the computer would shut down and it would power back up. And I thought maybe I had a hardware issue, but I realized it wasn't happening in any other IDE. But this made me love PyCharm even more because I opened a ticket with them. And within a day, a new version was then released out to the public because there was a memory leak issue. They responded directly to my ticket with a person, not a canned message, saying, hey, so sorry you had this issue. Here's your here's where we think the problem was. We fixed it. It was a memory leak issue. Shouldn't happen again. Let us know if you have any other problems. Here's my email address you can get back to. And it resolved the issue. And look, bugs happen. There's not a software manufacturer out there that doesn't have a product that has bought bugs. But actually getting a direct response that quickly from a huge company like that, to me, speaks volumes about them and the issues resolved. And it just made me love PyCharm that much more. So Huge shout out to them for awesome customer service and support. And yeah, I'm just continuing to try to get better at Python each and every week. Nice. I'm, I'm happy you had that experience because I mean, I haven't personally used PyCharm that that much because my Python skills are not um, They're polished. still probably better than mine. I, I, We'll have to, we'll have a Python off and see which one is the worst. <laughs> a Python off. This is something I want to see. When are we doing a Python off? I want to participate. Yeah. I don't know, but we'll, we'll we're, schedule we're it soon. We're fighting with Hello World scripts. Yeah. <laughs> hello World. Hello World Michael. Hello World Ryan. I win. Which I'll one? Participate just so you guys can feel better about your participation because I promise Perfect. you I'm a worse coder than you are. <laughs> I, I, accept, I accept that challenge. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. And DigitalOcean also recently announced new features like the Virtual Private Cloud, or the VPC, which is available in all regions free of charge, because this lets you create multiple private networks to isolate your workloads. And they've also been doing some stuff for Kubernetes, where they have the Container Registry, which is, allows you to easily store and manage private container images images and push images seamlessly to Kubernetes. And we love DigitalOcean. If you haven't, if you if this is your first time watching the show, you should know that we have a ton of stuff that we are relying on DigitalOcean droplets for because we have the DLN forum, the DLN websites, m many aspects of the websites are just powered completely by DigitalOcean because it's also super fast to get started. And you can get started for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, you can get a $100 credit. You get two months 
for free. You can try out a bunch of different small droplets or you can try out gigantic beefy droplets and you get that $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. And speaking of which, later in this episode, we're going to give you something you could use that $100 credit for that would be amazing. So stay tuned for that. Actually, wouldn't it be fair to say that every episode has something you could use that amazing? Probably right, because when we talked about Riot, you dropped that on DigitalOcean. We talk about the websites, it's DigitalOcean. We talk about Cody, it's DigitalOcean. NextCloud's DigitalOcean. Everything we do is pretty much DigitalOcean. Josh writes in to say, I recently purchased an HP Elite Desk Mini G1 for $100 as a server to replace my Raspberry Pi. These machines are currently very inexpensive because they're just being thrown away as they came with Windows 7 installed. I think they make a great option for anyone looking to tinker with Linux as an inexpensive or an inexpensive AMD 64 server. That being said, I went through the process of installing Nextcloud and using one of the installation scripts on Git. After I got Nextcloud up and running, I started the process of installing Collabra Online using the instructions outlined on the Nextcloud website. After going through the process of installing the server via Docker and registering a different domain, I went into the Nextcloud settings to activate the Collabra Online, and lo and behold, you don't have to set up your own server Docker or any of that stuff. You just install the app and click Use Built-in Code, and done. One more step to, towards de made easier by the folks at Nextcloud. Thanks a lot for the great podcast. Depending on who reads this email, choose from one of the following. Michael is the greatest host of all time. Noah is the greatest host of all time. Or Noah is the greatest host of all time. I gotta be honest. Josh, I'm going to go ahead and choose uh, Ryan is the greatest host of all time. I'm going to go with Noah. Definitely not Michael, though. Yeah. Wow. 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 Well, we we love him, though. Maybe we could just change to (laughs) Michael. Good-ish. If you put good-ish in there, we would have changed The goodest. The greatest. The goodest. Okay, this is interesting and in why I think people should be, you know, we've been talking about Michael moved his whole workflow to Nextcloud. We've a lot of people are interested in getting away from these cloud services where they have no control over their privacy. They have very little control over their security. Nextcloud is something you can easily deploy in DigitalOcean. So definitely a use for that $100 credit that we have there. But this Collabora Online thing is really interesting to me and something to revisit because I remember when we were looking for alternatives to do show notes and things like that. We looked at Collabora online in Nextcloud. And at that time, and I was setting it up, so I may have missed it, but you had to have a separate server set up to get Collabora to work. And it was just a ton of additional other steps. And it led us elsewhere. But now if what he's saying is you can click that, install Collabora online, and then use the code there, and you don't have to drop a separate server for it. What a fantastic way to integrate further and have your Word ability there, your document creation there. I think Collabra comes with a suite of different tools. I'm not sure if they all yeah. Collabra is basically like LibreOffice online. Essentially, you yeah. just have like the majority of what LibreOffice is, and you have that on as an online version. And this sounds like an awesome thing. So like like as Ryan said, that we were trying just to see if there was an ability to use this. And it required previously, I'm not sure how long this has been available, but previously you had to do that thing that Ryan said where you had to get a different server and it just kind of created this complex. Uh, there's so many really awesome things about Nextcloud that I already knew a little bit. And then digging in more and more, it's kind of like, it's like I didn't give it enough attention previously. And now I'm like realizing so many awesome things are there. So yeah, I didn't know this was a thing and that's really awesome. So thank you, Josh, for letting us know. And uh, if you are wanting to check out having your own online collaborative or like collaborative docs system or spreadsheets and whatever, this would be something to definitely check out. Thank you, Josh. 
So we got some really interesting news that's coming out this week, and it's about Google and Canonical teaming up to bring apps to Linux. So this is about this is a pretty interesting topic because uh, it's, it's related to Flutter and how Google is is creating this UI toolkit that's meant to be uh, natively compiled across different uh, different platforms like mobile and web and desktop and all that kind of thing over one single code base. It's also an open source. Uh, this open source framework, and it's using the Dart programming language, which Google also created. And the, the the goal that Flutter is basically trying to do, what Google says, is that they want to provide a portable framework for building UIs that run at native speeds, no matter what platform you target. So that's a very interesting thing. And there's been, a, over the years, been many different frameworks being created or runtimes being created for this purpose. And it's something that we really need as a you know, as an overall ecosystem for developers, because if there's no real big barrier to support Linux, then the better it is for the developers making, they have incentive to make it because it's not a big issue to do so. And I think that's a very important piece of this particular news, because in addition to making the Flutter framework, they teamed up with Canonical to do this, uh, make sure that the Flutter software is compilable for Ubuntu and Linux, which is awesome. And Canonical says about Flutter, they say that this is a a fast-growing ecosystem of application developers, multiple platform support, highly optimized native applications, modern UI framework supporting declarative, reactive, and composable widgets. And they also said it's 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 a rich development platform, and you can use stuff like Visual Studio Code, Android Studio, IntelliJ, and that kind of thing in order to make this software. So I think there's a lot of potential here. And I think there's the, the biggest issue is that we as a ecosystem are, nah, I guess, I don't want to say consistently pushing back against change, but it does happen quite a bit. And I think that the the thing that we've always needed as a platform is to have a framework that is compatible with multiple different systems, including Linux, to make it more likely that a developer would want to make and compile software for Linux. And I think this is a good step in that direction. There are a couple other things like competitors like React. Uh, React Native is another option. Uh, but I think that these, you know, back in the day there was Java and then there was like Electron and all that sort of stuff, but there was always some kind of issue, like the runtime in Java was needed, or in Electron, you need to have like Chromium built into your thing and make using web technologies. And this is more of a, you know, more of a direct style of programming where you have compilation, you have C++ involved as well as the Dart language. And I think there's a lot more potential overall for this you know, this particular framework, because it also has a lot of momentum already built for it. So I think that while it is made by Google, I think something like this does need to be made and it is open well, source. So it's uh, interesting. You mentioned that. Cause that's how my mind went at first. When I hear the word canonical teaming up with Google, I'm like, yeah. And then I see it's an open source project. And I'm like, ding, fine. It kind of removes that threat, right? When it's open source and worst case scenario, something goes awry. Somebody can fork it and remove that junk off of it and make it good again. So I'm very happy about that. I also think Canonical is making some really interesting partnerships here, right? They're working kind of Microsoft. They're working with Google. They're just working across all of these major companies and getting their name out there and pushing Linux forward, right? They're out there pushing Linux on this, like, hey, we want to get involved. We want Flutter to work on Linux. And in fact, in their quote on this, that's one of the things that they said 
made the most exciting is that it's a great opportunity for developers to be able to easily distribute their software on Linux distributions, including Ubuntu, which makes an attractive target for the Flutter app developers out there. So yeah, I think this is pretty exciting news overall. Now, there has been some people out there who have been concerned that I think Flutter itself and the distribution that's being pushed out there is Snap-based. So what are your thoughts on that? Is that, a, is that an issue? Should we all get our pitchforks? I mean, as far as Snaps go, I'm a, I actually think Snaps are good. And I also, this is a quick note. There are some, this is more of like the detractors for Snaps. I, I understand that the, the, the idea of having a, a closed store is not ideal. But all the other things that people typically say about how it's bad or whatever, like you could say that the the fonts are not great and there's some issues there and you're like, yeah, okay, sure. Or it's not boot. They don't boot as fast as you'd want them to do. And you're like, yeah, okay, sure there. But when people say stuff like what mint did, where they were saying like, you can't audit or patch or modify or anything. You can't do those things and you can't uh, update your hold back updates. You are forced to blah, blah, blah. All of that is not true. You can do all of those things. So when you want to have a, you want to detract, be a detractor on something. It's okay to say stuff. That's true. Like the boot problems, the font problems, the theme problems, all that stuff. Fair enough. The confinement problems. Yeah, there's things that you can have an issue with. That's fine. But make sure it's actually true. Do and some fact checking. Yeah, just a little bit of fact checking. There's a, there's a lot of things about Snaps that are awesome. And I think the one of the biggest things is that they have a backer like Canonical putting in this effort. Because do you see Flatpak doing any kind of partnership with Google to make Flutter support be, that, be available? No. Do you see the people making dev files and well, dev packages? Yet. Honestly, I haven't researched it, so I'm not sure. But I, I think both of them are honestly well, pretty the, cool. But the I don't main think thing it is that they take away from them. They're pushing I, their platform. I, I, that they I will created. tell you. I will tell you this: it, to the extent that Flatpak has has done it or hasn't, and I, like you, I've I've not done you know any any detailed in depth research. But I I can tell you this: I haven't seen Red Hat fly developers into a summit. And then sit them down, sure. and then fly Snap developers in there and say, "Hey, Microsoft, exactly. we want you to have uh, Skype uh, as a Snap. So here's one of our developers. He's going to live at Microsoft until until you get him to do the thing that he wants to do, so so that Skype works on Snaps. And then we'll make sure that that's all you have to do, you know, going forward. I I don't see people from Red Hat reaching out to people saying, "Hey, I saw you have a new project open." Uh, we'd like to extend our offer to go ahead and port that to Snaps for you so it's easy for you to keep up to date. And I mean, Canonical is killing it when it comes to yeah, they are. doing community outreach to get people onto the Snap ecosystem. Let me take this in a different direction because I think we kind of covered that good, but this is obviously a very exciting project. And for those who want to check out some of the apps out there, Photo Search, Flutter Gallery, and a game called Batufo, Batufo, but uh, check those out. Bat UFO, I think, is what it's supposed to be. But they're, they're just kind of examples of what you can do that are cross-platform. Let me ask you this. Is this push from these type of tools, which allow you to do cross-development from developers and things, going to bring more proprietary software to us or more open software to us? Because at some point, if you have a bunch of proprietary software being loaded into Linux and we're telling people to use it, don't we just become... Windows again with the proprietary right. add-ons and metadata grabs and everything happening that's, from so our operating system may not be taking our info, but our software might. That's a really good point. Fair enough, but also 
We always talk about the thing, especially, you know, Noah's mentioned this on a, a couple occasions about like the gradual conv- convincing of people to, you know, switch to Linux by letting them try a different alternative of a browser that's m- compatible with Linux or a different piece of software like LibreOffice that's compatible with Linux and all that stuff where you could gradually move them over. You could also apply that same concept to uh, companies where you have first provide support ability for making it easier for them to make their proprietary software work on the platform and then try to convince them to bring it into the open source world. Because if you try to first go to the open source aspect and just say your software is garbage without it being open, I mean, going at them that way, you're just automatically making them just go, well, we don't want to listen to you anymore. If you don't even I like, like your idea that you would do it in phases, and I've heard that before, right. and there are there are actually examples where that has worked. It's happened, but that was also during a time when people were pretty in the Linux community. When I joined four years ago, pretty people were adamant. If I put a proprietary software in a video in one of my YouTube videos, people would be like, oh, "You need to get rid of that and use this open source software." Nowadays, I see a lot of people in the Linux community just like. Oh my God, when am I going to get Microsoft Office? When am I going to get Adobe? I just want Adobe. I just want their products. I want the, they just, they don't really care if it's open source. And I feel like in some ways we have to be careful in this stuff. Not this particular example, but this is just kind of a talking point off of it that are we going to lose our roots as all of these developers and cross-platform yeah. tools come in? I, I, I really think you're onto something there, Ryan, because if you look at what, ha- look at, look at Teams, it's a great example of, Everybody in Linux, for the most part, is celebrating the fact that Microsoft released Teams for Linux. And what have we really gotten out of that? I mean, if you wanted, if you worked for Teams and you had to use it, there was already a web-based browser. So all they did was Electron wrap it. And in the process of doing that, they kept all of the privacy crap, anti-privacy crap, I guess I should call it, in there. So I, I, I agree with you. What, what's the purpose? Is the purpose of getting people to move over to Linux because we just want to say that we have another notch in our belt? Or are we actually trying to accomplish something here? And if we're trying to accomplish something, what is it? Because if, it's, if the goal is to get people to a more free and open source operating system with more free and open source software, we don't really do that by keeping the kernel the same and then installing a bunch of the same crap we had on Windows on Linux. Yep. I think you you make a good point, but I think that there's a yes, that's this is true, but at the same time the chicken or the egg problem is always a problem that we have to deal with. And I think that if you have at least a universal app format is a necessity in order to make more more people be involved. And I think getting more software is another is a necessity to get more people involved. So if we don't have something some kind of effort to just at least temporarily make them more comfortable to bring that software wouldn't we have this cycle of arguing of yeah, like it's wanna, not going to happen i just want to bring something up here real quick and this is not to pick on this partnership i think this is awesome i think this actually has me interested in flutter i'm really proud of you know i have issues with google but i am proud of a lot of the work they do in open source so taking this project and just using this as a launching pad only what I would love to see in these articles in the future when people are making partnerships, Red Hat, Canonical, whoever it is, to bring that cross-platform that they're also working on discussing and educating on the open source piece while they're working with the development teams. And obviously, this is an open source package, but the developers who are creating their packages, it would be great if there was education for them on that. And maybe I'm just reaching, but that seems like it may help facilitate what you're saying Michael is, you know, at least we should be telling people if you want to be on Linux, one of the things the Linux community appreciates and and really requires is that open source piece. 
I mean, yeah, I think that's a good point. And I, I think that uh, Nate in the chat, the patron chat said something that was pretty interesting. And that is, I don't think we will lose our roots. I think we will gain users and therefore gain a larger audience for open source software. And Yannick says that this might be a good angle here. So if you switch to Linux, we've got the same crap that you have on Windows. We just have it better. So That could be the future. Maybe. Our security advisory this week is brought to you by Bitwarden, and we're going to talk about encrypting your disk. Now, most distros, if you haven't noticed, are now offering, during the installation, a simple checkbox that lets you basically say, hey, I want to encrypt my disk. You don't have to do any magical incantations. You don't have to find some special software in a store. It's just a box, and a lot of distros have made it even more easy and more apparent during the installation in Pop! OS, I think it's its own screen, separate screen. Do you want to encrypt your disk? So it's a thing that a lot of people are looking to do. And there's a lot of reasons why you would want to do this. Number one, it's simpler than ever. Number two, if you have a client and you have their information on your machine, you can help protect their info, which is a good business practice. I'm sure, Noah, you could agree you've got your customer information on a machine, you have your employees walking around with their laptops and things, you don't want that machine to be able to be stolen and that data to be taken off. So encrypting your disk would help there. And if your personal laptop gets stolen with your personal information on it, that thief is far less likely to be able to get to your data by just booting off a USB drive. Now, one of the things that, Michael, I wanted to bring up here is you actually had an instance where you needed to get into an individual's computer and it was a sad situation. I think someone had passed and you were trying mm-hmm. to get some family photos and things. And you were able to basically, and this was a Linux machine, circumvent their entire root password with a simple USB disk. Well, yeah, the the thing about Linux... You don't even need a USB disk. Yeah, Linux allows you to just... You could drop to TTY and kind of get in that way. If you have physical access, it allows you to do it, which is a benefit in, in overall. Had they actually had the... like. It's a it's a very sad story because uh, unfortunately this was like a, a family that's the, the the father of the of the family was like very technical but all, in in the sense of like everybody else in the family was not technical so he had so many things that had like different layers of stuff so they had no chance of actually figuring it out how it worked so they they asked me to help and I it's been it took me hours and hours to figure out how to get into his structure but it was if it was encrypted it would be an impossible for me to do that so. If it was like there was a benefit that it wasn't encrypted, but at the same time that you, it's like how you get to just kind of like balance the options of like, is it worth doing? Is it not worth doing depending on your situation? And it's kind of a hard topic to even address because in many cases, there's not a good reason not to do it. And I, I guess there are a couple good reasons that you might not want to like uh, hardware. If you have really old hardware, it might, if you have like recent hardware, you're probably fine. But if you have old hardware, it might take a lot of resources to make it happen, depending on like how much data on your computer is. And there's other things. Like, I think that there's one topic that I always wanted to talk about. It's like, ask you what your opinion is of this is like, if you have a desktop computer, is there that much value in having the, encryption on it because you're not going to be it's not you're not going to lose it because you're not going to move it around everywhere and you're not going to carry it to different places is that like less of a, of a factor that's even need to worry about so i think there's it's interesting because there's so much value in it but is there enough value for everyone should do it 
What do you think, Noah? I, I, to quote Joseph Basic, encryption is simply trading CPU cycles for data security. So you have a choice, right? You can either get a little bit extra performance out of your computer by not encrypting, or you can get a massive amount of security uh, increase by encrypting. I would tell you that there's a thousand reasons not to encrypt your computer. None of them are any good. In 2020, the the reality is, what here's what you should do if you really want to understand why encryption is necessary. Take a hard drive, put some confidential files on it, do whatever it is you want to do to keep those confidential files uh, secure, and then Google, how do you go about breaking into that? And I, and I promise you, unless you're using encryption for the most part, you're, you're, you're going to be able to, to undo whatever it was you did uh, to get to those files. So, you know, putting them in a, in a secret folder that's, that's super hidden or whatever. I've seen people, you know, they put a couple directories deep or they create a second user account and that's the account that they use to store all of their stuff. All that stuff goes out the window. I name my plug- folder not important. That way the right. hacker just well, or the, realizes or the, You know, the name important. is Sys32 or some stupid. But it just, it, you're not, that's not, that's, that's, that's security through obscurity. And what that really is, is no security at all. So um, the proper way to go about securing your files, and everybody should do this, is you should have encryption. And, you know, as far as the, the comment about older computers, do I maybe have a Sony VAIO that has a 32-bit processor that it's hard enough to find an operating system that even boots on it, much less uh, if I enabled encryption, it, it would probably tank the thing? Yes. But should I be using that computer in 2020? No, I should not. Um, Fair enough. So, yeah, encrypt your data. <laughs> So if you want another way to stay secure, and I think we all could agree on this, get a good password manager. And the password manager we use and trust is Bitwarden. Password theft, serious problem out there. We see news stories on it every single week about passwords being stolen, databases being put out there with everybody's password on it. And the problem is a lot of people will even who think they're security minded go, well, I created a really complex password, except they use it for every service that they have. And how do you remember all of these passwords if you're going to do really complex passwords across a bunch of different sites, all your banking sites, all your social sites, and everyone pretty much requires a login now? Well, you can use Bitwarden to do that. It will be a password generator for you. So it can generate complex passwords and you can customize those generations to add in special characters, be certain character lengths, all of those things that you may need to set up depending on the website. It has all of those features built in really simple, easy to use GUI. I came from LastPass. And when I was using LastPass, then Michael came in and said, hey, I have a password manager you need to check out. It's Bitwarden. I switched to it and I fell in love and I've never gone back since well before they ever became a sponsor of the show. You can also self-host Bitwarden if you like. But my favorite feature about Bitwarden is that if you want all the premium features, it's free to get started. But if you want all the premium features, with all these additional tools that they have in there, including something we're going to talk about later, like utilizing a YubiKey in order to get in, you can do that for $10 a year. Not a month, not a week, not a day, a year. $10 a year, you get all those premium features. Absolutely love Bitwarden. We are so proud that they are sponsoring this show. So head to bitwarden.com slash DLN. Let them know that we sent you there and secure your passwords today. 
If you're not using two-factor authentication, then you're leaving yourself vulnerable. What is two-factor authentication? Put simply, it's something you have and something you know. You've used two-factor authentication for the last 20 years. You probably just don't know it in the form of your debit card. Pull the debit card out of your wallet. You know there's two things you need to use that sucker. You have to know the pin and you have to have the physical piece of plastic. That prevents somebody from stealing the piece of plastic because they won't know the pin or it prevents them from watching the pin because they won't have the piece of plastic. Well, it turns out 2FA is a remarkably effective way to secure your accounts and stop phishing attacks and man in the middle. Text-based 2FA is being compromised by more sophisticated means such as porting SIM swapping to your number to get text messages. Now, this is something that, Ryan, you're going to have a, a lot of a lot more information than I will, but it's something that I've wondered about for a while. You know, the, the reality is there's a couple of things I don't like about using phones and SMS for, uh, for two-factor authentication. It starts with this. I don't like using something that I don't have control over for two-factor authentication. And the reality is I don't really own my phone number. Yeah, I more or less rented from a company. And so when that phone number gets tied to a given service, that can put me in a really bad place. I have my Google voice number that I use for a lot of 2FA stuff. And I like that because I can sign in uh, using my username and password into a website and then activate that that 2FA so I'm never, uh, oh, shoot, I forgot my phone. But what I found is when it comes to things like the radio station where everybody does everything over actual text message, I forget my phone or something happens to it or my phone dies. All of a sudden I go into this panic attack because now my life is tied to this one physical device. And I understand that there are some ways that you can actually use to emulate other people's phones. This comes from the fact that really when SMS was designed, it wasn't really designed as a security thing. It was designed as a, as a cheap crappy way to shove text messages over a cellular network. Talk about how people can do that. Well, one of the primary things we see in telecom right now that's happening is really this, what they call porting or SIM swapping. And what it is, is very clever individuals who kind of understand internal policies of certain telecom companies. They understand that, you know, the front line is put under a lot of pressure to try to contain escalations and those type of things. They will call in, they will pretend they'll have enough of your information to basically pretend they're you. And either they've gathered that from your, you know, all the social websites and everything else that you're using out there, or they've gathered it randomly, or they've targeted you specifically, and they call in and, and basically put a lot of pressure on these particular agents to say, hey, I need you to swap my phone. I'm on a business. I've got a million dollar contract on the line. I'm going to cancel all hundred of my lines. If you don't swap this number right now, I need to swap it here. So now they swap the number. They find an agent, a weak link in the chain that will do that. And now every time you're in there typing in your password, you're suddenly not getting your SMS text, but the person on the other side is getting your SMS text instead. Also, there's a big issue with this cloud thing. You mentioned using Google Cloud. There's also, of course, the Apple version of that where you get your text messages on multiple devices or something. So maybe somebody doesn't have your phone in front of them but maybe they're sitting in front of your Mac laptop or your other Google, uh, your laptop with Google Voice still sitting on it. And now they get your 2FA authentication, you know, message to you so they can see that as well. So it's better than having no two-factor authentication. Let's say that. But there are better ways to do two-factor authentication. And one of them is one that you absolutely talk about a lot, Noah, and love. And that is the YubiKey or security keys. Let, let, your two-factor authentication. Let, let me do this. Before we jump into the, the hardware authenticators, let's talk about the next most popular way of doing 2FA and why it's probably not a good option. And that is software-based 2FA like Google Authenticator or Authy. And of course, the problem with these are, first of all, I, I've genuinely found them kind of a pain in the neck to set up. 
uh, mm-hmm. to be honest. I've never found it to be a particularly great experience. Um, it seems like every time I reinstalling my phone um, or resetting it up seems like that's going to be a, a a process. The the biggest thing is again, you're back to essentially a cloud service, right? You're back to trusting Google to deal with your 2FA. And of course, that also I have to ask, does that not open up to the possibility of if the government comes in and says, hey, we want you to unlock Noah's account, um, does Google have the ability to say, well, yeah, we control Authy or we control Google Authenticator. We'll go ahead and open that back up for you if, if you say he's done something wrong and we need to, to go look into his stuff, right? So I, I'm, I, that again doesn't seem like a great 2FA. The best out there seems really like it should be a hardware-based authentication token. This is something that you're going to purchase, something you're going to own, something you can physically possess. It really is the uh, the ATM card of the of of 2020. But the, the 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 question then becomes, which one? Because there are a lot of them out there, and a lot of them are really good. So I guess let's start with this, Ryan. What are some of your favorites? Well, listen, uh, YubiKey was the most popular. I heard about it on your show, uh, Ask Noah's show, and I actually didn't want to spend. I, I needed a bunch of them, and I didn't want to spend a ton of money. And Wired Magazine actually had a promotion where they would send, if you signed up for a year, a free YubiKey to their their subscription service. So what I did is I went on eBay and found that these Wired YubiKeys, which are really nice YubiKeys, were actually everybody who was getting them probably didn't even understand when they got their subscription, what they're for or whatever, but they were selling them in mass quantities. So I got like 10 for 50 bucks YubiKeys in, in a pack. So that was one of the ways that I've, you know, received the YubiKeys that I have. So I have multiple ones and copies of them, but they're amazing because depending on the YubiKey that you get specifically, they have features like NFC. So if you hold this near your phone, you can utilize it as a hardware for your phone as well. Obviously USB, it can't plug in, but if it has NFC, you can utilize that. You, you can have options like the one-time password, of course, which you can also use Bitwarden for. And that's kind of the double security thing. So if you want to use one-time password for a website, and you want to use your YubiKey, Bitwarden has YubiKey support built in for that $10 a year. So you can have that as you enter your password into Bitwarden, then you have your YubiKey as your second verification, and then you have your one-time passwords inside those um, different sites and things that you log into as an option as well there. I've not tried the other ones. There's like Thetis, there's Kensington, NitroKey out there. Uh, have you used any of the alternatives to YubiKey? I, I have. My favorite alternative to the YubiKey is the Trezor. It was originally designed as a Bitcoin wallet, but what I like about it is it has a built-in little LCD screen, and so it 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 gives you two-way communication, and it also allows you to authenticate on the device itself. So rather than having to install software on your computer and then the YubiKey talking to the software, in my case, I'm using the PKCS11 provider. Uh, with the Trezor, it you literally plug it in, shows up as USB device. Device. You pick the account that you want to off to, um, and on the screen, on the Trezor itself, you type in your PIN. By the way, it shifts the PIN. This is very interesting. I've not seen this done before in any other device. It shifts the order that the numbers are in, so that you have you can you have to you have to hunt for your PIN. But if anybody's watching over your shoulder, they might see top, bottom, left, right. But the next time you enter the PIN, it'll be you know bottom, bottom, Ooh, right, left, or whatever. It sh- yeah, it shifts yeah. the number. I mean, they've really put some thought into this. Um, so that's my favorite one. But nothing really compares with the YubiKey, and I'll take a minute to explain why. YubiKey has a number of different modes that it can operate in. Now, it has two slots by default, and you can choose a mode for each slot. So the most common thing that people do with YubiKeys is probably the one-time uh, password, or OTP. So it generates a different password every time you push the button. And this is uh, 
this is correlated against a Yubico server. And so if you're building a site and you want to put 2FA, you simply point it towards Yubico server. Anybody with the YubiKey can push the button the first time and register it with their account. And then every time after that, it will check the what is being generated from the YubiKey, that it is an authentic uh, authentic key generated from the original private key. So, so this is the most popular way that people are probably using YubiKeys. Uh, after that, though, there is um, both, of course, it contains GPG, which is you know, very popular thing in the open source community. I like PKCS11. I think it's a little bit more powerful um, than, the, than the regular GPG. And uh, PKCS11 is essentially a smart card emulator. So it emulates, if you've ever seen the movies, they have a key card, they stick it in the so keyboard, cool. they type yeah. the thing. That's what it's emulating. It's, it's, it's the exact same technology. This is what I like for using it for SSH. And, and um, what it allows me to do is I can write a private key to the YubiKey. The YubiKey then never gives up that private key. It simply signs. And I can give those keys out to employees if anybody ever quits or is fired I can just ask for the key back and as long as they physically give me the key I know that it couldn't have been duplicated and of course if they leave then I void the key and we're done there is a third mode though that is going to, I think is going to become the industry standard pretty quick if it isn't already and that is the FIDO2 standard now the FIDO2 standard is essentially this is what Nitro key and and YubiKey and all of these other keys they all support in common is they support the FIDO2 standard and it's a universal two factor authentication or U2FA now there's a second generation of U2FA it's called the FIDO2 standard or WebAuthN and here's the mentality of WebAuthN to the extent that I understand it it's similar in legacy to U to F. But WebAuth and essentially comes off this premise. Ryan, you have an account, and let's say at um, linuxdelta.com. And let's say that the password reset utility for linuxdelta.com sends it to your email. This is pretty popular on most websites, right? So you go to the website and you, you can't log in or your two-factor authentication is broken. So you have to read, you have to do a password reset. So you go in and say, I'm who I say I am. I can prove it because I have access to this email address. And they go ahead and send you an email to that email address and you sign in the email, click on the link or whatever. It says, okay, now you can reset your password. If you think about it, really at the end of the day, what we're saying is that a person who has access to this email address is the proper uh, account holder. So we, what if we had some sort of a system where you could send the email and just click on the email and then it would magically log you in, kind of like Slack does, right? They call it the magic right. link, right? So the FIDO2 standard essentially works like this. Instead of just using the hardware device as a second factor, in other words, you type in the password first, what if when you showed up to a site, you could just touch the side of your computer and the fact that you you unlocked that device individually with a pin or something like that, but the, and then the fact that you touched the device says, I'm who I say I am. Don't bother sending the email reset, all that crap. Just, I have this device. I'm the only person that has this device and knows the pin. So I'm who I say I am. And the, so the translation, if you didn't follow that entire example is you plug this USB device, you go to your account, you type in a four digit pin and you, you tap on the key or six digit pin, whatever you want. And it logs you in and use the exact same pin and the exact same hardware device for every single site. And there, there is no more such thing as log on with a username and password. It's an outdated thing. I plug this hardware key and I log in. That's the U2F WebAuth N standard. And um, at the time that it, when it first came out, I was so excited about this because I thought, man, this would solve problems right, left, up and down for my customers and, and, and just people in general. Yeah, that's the number one thing we troubleshoot is account lockouts and stuff like that. And I could only find one company that was implementing it, and it was Microsoft Office 365. So I played with it a little bit, hired a developer and said, hey, I want you to build this out for AltaSpeed. I want to tell all of my AltaSpeed employees, no matter what resource you're using, you take this little key, you plug it in the side of your computer, you type in your pin, press the button, and you're logged in. That's what I want to do. And so we've been trying to roll that out, not terribly successfully because it's a new standard, like I say, but 
this is where I think That's the future really cool of that you're working on that. Yeah, this is where the future of uh, of two factor authentication is going to be. And and to be honest with you, I'd make a red book prediction that we are going to get to a point where these U2F uh, FIDO2 devices are going to be built right into the laptop. I really believe, and I've already seen some work where they're trying to hack the fingerprint reader to kind of work sort of, it doesn't actually read your fingerprint, but it just, it just for presence detection. I, I like that idea that the you, we can just register the computer as a thing that can log in. Then we encrypt the computer and, and then, then we call that secure. Well, I think the other thing too, because some people who may not be technically inclined might be like, oh, what they're sounding like sounds way too difficult and things to set up is there's a lot of complexity in the back end of these things, but it's, yeah, as far as setting it up, you push in the whole touch a button. Uh, Most of the distros have the YubiKey support software built directly in. And so what I end up doing is, and it's so much faster than using Authy or anything else. If you go into your sites, you go to log in, you click, you tap the button, there's your two-factor authentication, it's done. There, it's You can basically, if you're doing a new setup and you hop distros like I do, you can be set up with all of your accounts reaccessed in within minutes. And it's just an amazing, it's amazing speed and, and savings from, from that aspect alone. But what you're talking about is really taking it to a whole new level. My only problem with it being built into a laptop is if it's not something you can take with you, then once somebody gets your pin, anybody can push their finger and hold it there. That was the thing I was thinking. Yeah, but so the so the idea with it being built into the laptop is the key is still separate, right? It's just the you still have a unique key for that laptop and you still have a you. unique pin for that laptop. It's just that instead of having, you know, like I, I don't have one next to me that I can show you, but you know, the little Yuba keys that you insert into your computer and it just lives there. Yeah. The idea would be that you would buy that from the manufacturer with that already in there. Basically, this for those on video, and that's the little golden plate is what you would touch each time you want it to authenticate and do that two-factor authentication. And if you're worried about it, because I I think Zeb at one time had gotten one of these and locked himself out of his accounts, a lot of sites will let you actually utilize this as an option and then have the other authentication like Authy as another way to get in your account. Now, obviously, you've compromised some of the advantages of, but if to get you started in using one of these, if you want to keep both of those active until you fully trust this, this is something that you can do. And if you get multiple ones, you can create copies. And so if you ever lose this or break it or whatnot, you can still get back into your account. I think that gradual approach like that you're saying for having the two different methods, at least till you get used to doing it that one particular way, is a good uh, is a good idea. And also I've learned to, in this episode that uh, I didn't know that much about two-factor authentication. Well, you better get started, sir. Yeah. I mean, I use stuff, but... The way we started this this segment, Noah's like, a lot of people are probably doing it this way, and this is why you shouldn't do it. I was like, oh, man, that's me. Michael's over there with, I guess I need to change my one password for everything. Not that part. I was talking, there was some of the software solutions. That was, that he, was. The- he, he, he's going to leave lots of scenes for me as his default password for everything. No, 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 no. I, scenes are the I best. have thousands of passwords, and One, that's two, three, thanks four. to Bitwarden and making it possible to actually have oh, it all stored. Nice. Well, well done, done using the Bitwarden. There you go. So here's all you have to do, Michael. You're using a secure way to store your passwords. The only thing left you got to do is you just have to secure that Bitwarden account with the YubiKey. Oh, that sounds good. Up in that biz. Yeah, there you go. So all this security talk, we can't do a game that has DRM all over it. We need a DRM-free game. So I went out there on a hunt to find one because there's not always a lot of them out there and found an awesome game out there for everyone to check out called Drox Operative 2. So Drox Operative 2 is a starship action RPG 
You've got warring alien races, space battles, dynamically evolving galaxy. You've got co-op multiplayer and cross-platform. So if you have some friends that are still stuck on Windows, they haven't switched over to Linux yet, you can still play this game with them. And while you're playing with them live in co-op, convince them why Linux is better by destroying their galaxy and all of their ships and things out there. So it looks like a really fun game. It kind of combines the best of uh, a top-down kind of space shooter, like maybe an R-type-like game, but then has all of the elements of an RPG stacked on top of exploring planets and scanning and resources and, and things along those lines. And if you get it on GOG, you get no DRM as well. So you have the full, you don't have to deal with all the licensing and spyware and all that crap that sometimes gets put into games. So very cool. Check out this game, Drox, D-R-O-X, Operative 2. So up next in the show is the Software Spotlight. And this is a very interesting application because I didn't know it existed and I didn't even know this was a thing until uh, Ryan showed it to me. So it's called Solfage, Solfage, I'm not sure, but uh, it's an ear training program. So if you've ever wanted to learn to play an instrument or improve your uh, current abilities to play instruments, you might want to check out this this application because it allows you to, you can have like kind of train your ears to recognize different chords and intervals and scales and, and music theory and that kind of thing. And it's very, very interesting. I don't know that much about this topic, but uh, there were some individuals who were leaving ratings on the app for, that were music teachers and stuff like that, and that also train instruments. So they said that they said that it was quite good, and they they use it to help people learn to use to you know teach them this this ear training thing, which is and I think that this is a really interesting idea. That I'm re- I think it's really cool that we're covering it because I didn't even know this is a possibility. Well, you play the and, recorder, so this may help you with the recorder, but. I play a harmonica and I've been using this software all week and I just want to give you a short little demo here. There you go. So that's the thing <laughs> that you can do if you start utilizing Wait, 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 wait. I don't I don't play the recorder. I actually play a harmonica as well. We need to jam. Oh, you see we, my skill. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We need to jam. Wait, what can Noah play? The triangle maybe? We I could start I, the, I can play the drums, yeah. He's, he's, he he can do the drums. bongos. He can do the bongos. <laughs> yeah. He'd be a bongo player. We told you at the beginning of the episode that you should be using encryption. Now we're going to explain exactly why. Let's say you have a server that uh, John uh, administrated and John uh, decided to skip town. And so he walked out and he said, screw all of you guys and walked out the front door. And now all of a sudden we have this server and we need to break into it. What are we going to do? Well, there are five run level modes in Linux. There is run level five, which is the graphical user interface. Four is is a placeholder. Three is the CLI with networking. Two is a place, or two is, uh, I believe, is a placeholder. Or, and then one is what's known as single user mode. Single user mode is exactly what it sounds. It boots Linux up with a single user, and that single user is the root user with all of the privileges that come with root. Now, you may say to yourself, hey, that sounds like that's a massive security flaw in Linux. It's not. It's it's this way by design. You want a godlike mode to be able to recover from a failure because the reality is if you can get physical access to the server, then you're going to be able to get into it, even if it's a function of uh, just reinstalling the operating system, unless you have, of course, encryption set up. 
So how do we get into run level one? Well, the way that we do that is we start the computer booting. And when we see the boot screen, the thing that says, hey, I want to boot into CentOS, and then it gives you the, the, the kernel name, you're going to press the E key. And the E is going to allow you to edit the boot arguments. Now you're going to go down into the into the line that that where you see the uh, the kernel. It'll say like slash boot slash VM L-I-N-Z dash and then, you know, 3.15 whatever the, the kernel name is, right? You're going to go to the very end of that line uh, and you're going to change the argument RO to RW. This is going to change the file system to be read-write so that you can actually write the change. If you don't do this, it will work. You'll be able to type PSWD and, and change your password. The problem is you won't actually update anything. You reboot the computer, you'll be right back to where you started. So you want to find the argument that says RW, and then it'll say something like init equals sysroot slash bin slash S8, something like that. Find the RO, change it to RW. Uh, once you've done that, then you're going to go to, to the very end and you're going to add the number one. And that's going to tell the kernel that you want to boot into single user mode. And so typically the very last thing you'll see in that big long string of, of, of boot arguments is quiet. That's a, a really great place to look and just go one space after quiet and then press a one. Press control X or F10 and that will boot you into single user mode. Then once you're in single user mode, you can type uh, PASSWD space and then the new password you want and then reboot the machine and you'll have root access back. So that what you're talking about that there is the person left and you were still able to recover your machine, which is how it is by design, but it's also could be a security flaw for somebody who's wanting to have extra security layers on top that you basically can interrupt the boot process, type in some of these commands and be able to bypass and change the root password and get into all the important files. And every distro like CentOS, you were, I have some of the instructions here, which is very similar to what you just described, has its instructions, depends on the distro, some are slightly different, but this allows you to just bypass that. Now, if I had that encrypted drive and we go through that same scenario, Noah, what happens then? Um, when you go through that same scenario, the very first thing you'll do is you won't be able to actually write anything to the drive. Grub can't be encrypted by default, right? I mean, you, you have to, ha Grub has to be unencrypted because you have to be able to, the UEFI interface has to have something to hand it off to and it has no concept of encryption. So um, Grub can't be encrypted, but as soon as you go to try to do anything on the file system, the very first thing you're going to have to do is decrypt the file system so that you can actually make changes to it. Um, so in, in, in the event uh, in the event of an encrypted file system, you wouldn't even get to the option uh, to the point where you'd be able to change the root password, much less boot into the system. Um, you'd first have to defeat the 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 encryption mechanism. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, thank you so much for your continued support. And if you want more Destination Linux you should become a patron like all of these amazing people that are here with us today. You get a bunch of perks like unedited versions of the show. So if you can't make it live, you still get the full, all the discussions in between the stories and of course the after show and you get to troll Michael with us live. And there is no better experience in the world than doing that. He has so many things you could troll him about his stool, his hair. I mean, it's endless. No, 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 no. You're saying there's no better experience. I, I have to disagree with that because there's a life-changing experience. If you get some swag from the DLN store, you can represent your love of DL and open source by picking up some Destination Linux Network swag. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and so much more, and a lot more coming soon too. So check out destinationlinux.network slash store. And if you're watching on video, you can see I have, I'm representing the Ask Noah show here 
Michael, of course, is representing himself because he's selfish. Like no, that. this is this and is Noah's this is wearing the, a Dos Geek shirt. True. You can't see it, but it totally has a Dos Geek emblem and everything. I see it. it. So I see it for awesome. sure. If you're not down with the DLN community, then you're already missing out. Mostly big leap party in Linux. DLN discourse form <laughs> is totally fly. Want to chin wag in real time? We got that too with a Fraggle Rock and DLN Telegram group. If you want to be no scope headshot, join the DLN Discord server. Wow, you are so hip. What is happening? Fraggle Rock. I'm reading man. what you wrote. That's what's happening. Fraggle Rockin'. I love it. You don't know how long I laughed after writing that stupid sentence. I just that's the I don't I don't know how how long I'm gonna actually be able to transition at this point because Fraggle Rockin' is too awesome. Anyway. So if you want some more content from us or anyone else a part of the DL network, go to destinationlinux.network and you'll find all kinds of open source goodness, the podcast, YouTube channels, all sorts of stuff. And definitely check it out because there is a ton of great content there. Also check out the pseudo show with Eric and Brandon. The pseudo show covers topics ranging from enterprise open source to cloud management. We also have a whole new cast on the DL at extend with Wendy, Matt along with Nate. So make sure to check them out. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. week. Patrons, if you'd like to turn your cameras on, turn your microphones on, join us in the post show. Yannick, what's happening, man? Hey. You here to give us trouble? Yeah, always. (laughs) Always. Always. Michael was getting a little out of control, so I'm glad you showed up. Oh, boy. Here we go.